The research community is increasingly recognizing the importance of sharing patient-level data from clinical trials in order to maximize the knowledge gained from research efforts. But the nuts and bolts of that practice, including when and what data should be shared and how credit for secondary analyses should be awarded, is still a matter of intense debate. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Dr. Jeffrey Drazen, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal. Dr. Drazen, in a recent Perspective article, Lowe and Demetz discussed the difficulty involved in conducting secondary analyses many years down the line, after trials have ended, even for researchers who are working with their own data. So how will the prospect of increased data sharing change how trialists approach conducting those original studies? When you do a clinical trial, you gather hundreds and hundreds of data. And if you do it with the idea that only you are going to use those data just once or twice, you do it in a different way that you know if you're gathering the data not only for you, but for many other people around the world. You have much better data husbandry. Your fields are better defined, and when you change definitions, you make it clear when and why you change the definitions. The data fields that you choose are ones that you think are most informative and that relate easily to clinical measures, so that the very process of knowing that when you finish, your data are going to be shared by many people changes the way you behave. And it's actually going to be more work at the beginning but then it'll allow your data to be shared among many others. Some researchers have voiced concerns about data sharing related to the possibility that unqualified investigators will use their data to come to erroneous conclusions. So who should be the gatekeepers responsible for deciding what data go to what secondary analysts? When you do a clinical trial, we're asking investigators to file a data sharing plan. And one of the elements of the data sharing plan would be with whom will you share your data and by what means. And there can be a number of examples. For example, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease has a trial share network. And they put data from some of their clinical trials. For example, we published a trial on the role of early peanut feeding on later life peanut allergy on the trial share network. Anybody who signs a data use agreement can access the data. If you started now, before the end of this podcast, you could have a username and password and access their data. In other settings, though, people say that only people who come with a specific research question, perhaps approved by an institutional review board, can access data. And investigators, as they outline their data sharing plan, can also outline their publication plan. This is the primary paper that's being published, but they plan four or five secondary analyses to be concluded over a very specific time frame. So that if somebody wants to share data to do those analyses, it would have to wait until the original investigators had a chance to publish them. The goal there is to allow investigators to make it very clear what data will be shared with whom when, but they can't keep the data forever. In another perspective article, Rockhold and colleagues describe data sharing systems that have been set up by GlaxoSmithKline and other pharmaceutical companies and academic institutions. How do you see those efforts being combined to go forward as a unified system? So one of the biggest potential promises from data sharing is that you can share data across many clinical trials. And if the data dictionaries, the way the data are deposited, differ from study to study to study, that will make that type of analysis almost impossible to do. So what Rockhold and co-workers suggest is that we adopt standards for data sharing and that all the people who are contributing to the data sharing effort 
do it in a way which is mutually compatible so that data sets from different groups can be easily combined. I think the greatest promise from data sharing is where someone who did a cancer trial can share their data with someone who's doing a renal or cardiovascular or even a schizophrenia trial and learn something that nobody had ever asked. But that's only going to happen if the data sets really are compatible with each other. So Rockholt also reports that only four analyses have been published using data requested from GlaxoSmithKline, despite more than 200 research proposals that have been submitted to that database. So what does that say about the types of challenges that are involved in using that shared data? So Rockhold et al. point out something that either could be good news or bad news. The good news is that if people were sharing the data with the idea of replicating the published work, the fact that there wasn't a secondary publication is implicit suggestion that the work had been replicated. It may also be that they were trying to use the data to extend the ideas, and it didn't work. As someone who works in the lab all the time, this is common lab practice. You have an idea, you want to explore it, It turns out that it didn't work. It was not quite well formed. But at least you had the data to do it. And the easier it is to analyze individual data sets, but more importantly, the easier it is to analyze data sets in the aggregate, the more likely we are to advance health from it. So in a third perspective article, Grossman and colleagues describe another model for data sharing, the National Cancer Institute's Genomic Data Commons. And that's intended to support research in precision oncology. What would the success of that sort of model mean for the way data are collected and the way they're shared? So we actually published an example of that in an article that was published in January of this year, where investigators were able to look at specific genetic signatures and outcomes and determine if there, in fact, were signatures associated with a positive or negative outcome or response to chemotherapy or the need for or lack of need for chemotherapy. And so what they hope comes from their data analysis is that people will be able to look at aspects of the tumor or the cancer that wasn't considered as part of the inclusion or exclusion criteria for the study, but would help us define who in a study does well, who does poorly, who has toxicity, and who doesn't. And the Cancer Institute people hope that many people will be able to use those data as they think up new ways to treat patients suffering from cancer. As part of its efforts to promote responsible data sharing, the journal is launching the Sprint Data Analysis Challenge. Tell us what that is. So in November of 2015, we published the first analysis of the SPRINT trial, which was a trial of controlling hypertension in older people to different levels of systolic pressure. And the thinking had been that if you had blood pressure too low, that there would be harm. And people were surprised that it appeared that low blood pressure, systolic blood pressure in the elderly, was reasonably well accepted and had actually benefits rather than harms. So that data set's been out almost a year. It will be a year in November. And in order to promote the idea of data sharing, we think nothing gets you into something more like the actual doing of it yourself. So we want to take this data set and put it out in the public domain. You need to get permission from an IRB, but it's not going to be difficult to obtain, and to analyze the data set. So the first criterion is going to be, can you answer some question about the data? So that means you downloaded the data and could understand the data. And we might ask, this is probably not going to be the question, how many people with systolic blood pressures on entry of over 140 and over 72 years of age were on statins? So if you understand the data set, you should be able to answer that question. Once you show that you understand and can manipulate the data, 
We're leaving it up to you to use those data and data from any other public source to come up with something from the data set to teach the world about the treatment of high blood pressure or anything else that you can use the data for. So we want to put the data set out there as a poster child for here it is, this was an important trial, teach us something from it, show us your creativity. It's like an art contest. And we're asking people to be as creative as possible to use these data to help advance human health. When we do all of this, we have to remember that the enemy here is disease. We want to prevent people from suffering from disease. It's not each other. It's not academic credit. It's who can make a difference in human health. We want to help foster that by giving people an opportunity to analyze data and show us they can make a difference. And how can people sign up for the Sprint Challenge? You go to the New England Journal website and we'll have a specific URL for that challenge. And then you follow the five steps. And the first step is to get approval from your institutional review board to access the data at the NIH BioLink site. The second step is with that approval is to go to the BioLink site and to get the proper credentials. You then download the data. You then answer the challenge question. And once you've answered the challenge question, you're in the competitive round to see who can perform the best flip, learn the most from the data. Thank you, Dr. Drazen.